Chapter 4 of the Mind the Paint Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nathan Fair. The Mind the Paint Girl by Lewis Tracy. Chapter 4. The Descent. Jays never afterwards forgot that drive through London. Shaftesbury Avenue was up, so the cabman, with the curious liking of his tribe for byways in preference to main thoroughfares, threaded the mean streets of Soho and East Marlebon. Somehow this ignoble retreat through the slums of London did not offer a happy augury for the future. It looked to Jays as though he were passing from the glitter and brightness of metropolitan life into depths at once sordid and depressing. It did not help to cheer his gloom when, at a corner of Tottenham Court Road, he caught sight of a newspaper placard bearing a legend of singular personal interest. Staring black type announced that the evening something or other contained a portrait and biography of the Mind the Paint Girl at the Pandora. On the impulse of the moment, he stopped the cab and bought a copy of the paper. Sure enough, a very fair picture of Lily Paradell appeared on an inner page, and the printed details of her life were far more flattering than was warranted by the facts. Evidently the department which dealt with the advertising literature of the Pandora Theatre had prepared this glowing memoir, and, indeed, Jays fancied he could trace the same skilled hand that had aroused his ire by the paragraph in one of the morning journals. This discovery, or guess as it might be described more accurately, gave him time to think. He had supposed that the reference to the complimentary luncheon at Catani's was a kindly puff, emanating from some journalist who frequented the restaurant, but now he had reason to suspect that the theatre's press agent was embarking on a serious campaign in behalf of its latest celebrity. Each line of the laudatory notice bore witness to an intimate knowledge of Lily's career, a knowledge which suppressed or distorted her professional experiences until they were made to appear part of a settled plan that had resulted in her triumphant debut as the Mind the Paint Girl at the Pandora. Even the account of her birth and upbringing was trimmed to suit the writer's intent. She was described as the only daughter of a successful merchant who had been widely known and esteemed in the Battersea district until his lamented death some years earlier. Jays knew the truth. He knew that a faded little man had worked and striven until he was pushed out of a small shop by competition, and finally driven out of life itself, one among the thousands of unrecorded failures which London produces with such callous indifference. Fah! His strong hands crushed the newspaper into a ball, and he threw it into the roadway. One day, sixteen months later, the senior major of the North Devons, questioned on the point by a perplexed colonel, admitted that Captain Jays seemed to be losing grip. About the same period the subalterns of the battalion, more brutally juvenile in the frankness of their judgment, had arrived at the conclusion that Jays was a slacker. There was a dreadful truth about both verdicts, and none knew it better than Nico Jays himself. He had visited London four times during that weary year, and on each occasion had returned to the regiment less eager to advance in his profession, and more disconsolate because of the ever-widening gap between Lily Paradell's meteoric rise in public favour and his own apparent anchorage in a backwater of routine. It was not true, of course, that he was being overlooked by the authorities. It was not true that he had no career to look forward to. In his saner moments he realized that hard work and faithful devotion to duty would surely earn promotion, more rapidly in his case than was attainable by thousands of other officers equally keen, 
equally well qualified for better things, but lacking the interest he could command. Had he never met Lily Paradell, he would unquestionably have been happy and content, but her letters, each glowing eulogium in the press, every scrap of gossip retailed by the latest arrival from London, strengthened the conviction that she was drifting away from him, that while he remained in the army it was hopeless to think of marrying her. At last the crash came. The battalion figured among the Indian reliefs for the next trooping season. Jays, like every other man in the regiment, obtained short leave in his turn, and raced off to London. It must be now or never for him with Lily Paradell. She must either abandon the stage, marry him, and drop into the conventional round of the Memsahib, who gives more to the Empire than her stay-at-home sister dreams of, or he must weigh in the scales an infatuation as opposed to a career. He knew exactly what travail and argument and bitter family broils lay ahead. Rumor had been busy, even in quiet Huntingdon, and the mother had written to her soldier son, imploring him to cut loose from a connection which could not be other than harmful. I say nothing as to the personal qualities or charm of Miss Paradell, she wrote. She must be both clever and fascinating, or she could never have made so great an impression on the play-going public of London. But she and her like should marry in their own class. Its members should not think of allying themselves with the men of our county aristocracy, who lead our public services almost by right of birth, and who, in their turn, should rear sons and daughters fitted to carry the flag to the far lands. Such girls do not make good mothers. In that sense, if in no other, they are a menace to society. Here, then, was a solid rock of prejudice awaiting him at Huntingdon. Bob, his eldest brother, took a different line, but one equally emphatic. The newspaper account of the festivity at Catani's had found its way to distant Bulawayo, being copied and recopied until it appeared in a small local sheet months after the original publication in London, when, oddly enough, Brother Bob had missed seeing it. "'Dear Nico,' he wrote, "'judging from the enclosed cutting, you seem to have been going it, date uncertain, but details convincing. Chuck it, dear boy. Give it the everlasting shove. Our crowd looks rather out of place in such gatherings. I want to see your name in dispatches, not in the tittle-tattle of the coulisse. I'm going strong out here, and hope to have a run home next year. It'll be rather rotten if I miss you, but a fellow in the Manchesters told me the other day that your battalion was due in India next cold weather. Of course, if that's so, we'll grumble and make the best of it. There is always a jays somewhere on the frontier. Sound, honest counsel, which wrung the withers of the recipient, nor was the situation improved on the morning the letter arrived by the fact that his colonel sent for jays and complained about the low musketry average attained by his company. It is the worst in the battalion, and used to be the best, he said. Why is that? I always regarded you as my most promising officer in musketry instruction. A year ago you were a keen soldier, thorough in every respect, and particularly so on the range. What has happened? Can I help you in any way? The colonel's tone was kindly, even if the words were uncompromising. Jays muttered miserably that he had been bothered by personal matters, but would endeavor to effect an improvement when the regiment went to India. He hated to admit, even to himself, that he was acting foolishly. Yet it was borne in on him that the policy of drift was a complete failure, so he came to London in a mood to hurl thunderbolts and defy lightning. The Duchess of Brixton was still running merrily. Eva Shafto had married her baronet, and Lily Paradell was appearing in the title role. The song that made her famous had been dropped long ago, 
but its catchy refrain and the still more catchy nickname it had conferred would never be forgotten by her generation. To all London she was still the mind-the-paint girl. The curious appellation lent her a sort of protective aura. She was impulsive, good-hearted, lively, and outspoken as ever, but no man dared press acquaintance to the bounds of flirtation. Her profession, and especially the place she filled in it, might have been expected to expose her to the malice of the disappointed and the innuendo of scandalmongers, but never a word was breathed against her. Perhaps the nebulous attachment between Jays and herself accounted for some part of this good repute. Perhaps the fact that her mother was nominally mistress of the pretty house in Bloomsbury meant something. But the characteristics which that amazing song attributed to her stilled the tongue of gossip. She was wealthy as wealth goes on the stage. Her salary was magnificent, and she was worth every penny of it to the theatre. Then she had a stanch backer in Lionel Roper, a vastly different person on the floor of the stock exchange from the dapper little man who cavorted around the foyer of the Pandora, and entertained bevies of lissom beauties to supper at the Savoy. He made money for her in speculations which were under his own control, and she spent that portion of her income right royally. Her kindness was noteworthy, even in the annals of the most charitable of professions. Her purse was always open to a needy friend. It was enough for Lily Paradell to hear that some brother or sister mummer was in want, and she not only relieved temporary necessities, but, if the sufferer was not quite hopeless in a business sense, went out of her way to cajole managers into finding employment. Of course, her matrimonial prospects were eagerly canvassed by her friends. Those who knew about Nico Jays shook their heads over what they called Lily's madness, while the larger circle, wrecking little of the claims of some impecunious army man, vowed that their idol ought to marry a duke. So Jays was coming into a hornet's nest when he stepped from the Irish mail at Euston in the small hours of an October morning, and was rattled boldly to fate and his club in an antiquated four-wheeler. He had announced his arrival by letter, and a telegram bidding him come to lunch awaited him. He knew what that meant. A noisy meal shared with anyone who happened to drop in, and people were always dropping in on the Upjohn menage. Three or four girls from the theatre would certainly be present. They would chatter incessantly until someone remembered an appointment with a dressmaker, followed by another for tea at Rumpelmeyer's, after which Lily must rest before going to the theatre. When the show was over, ten to one there would be a supper at a restaurant or in somebody's rooms, perhaps an at-home or a dance, and most certainly no shred of opportunity for a quiet word with Lily. So, being a masterful person, he sent her a note after breakfast, saying that he would be delighted to stay for lunch but must have a talk earlier, and purposed calling at noon or a few minutes before. He hoped she would reserve an unoccupied half-hour and remained, yours ever, Nico. Punctually at a quarter to twelve, he alighted from a taxi at the door of a spacious house lavishly decorated with well-filled window-boxes. He was admitted by a supercilious parlour-maid, whose haughty demeanour did not abate one jot at sight of a privileged visitor. "'Mrs. Upjohn is not quite well this morning,' she announced. "'And Miss Paradell is out, but she left word that when you called, you were to be shown into the drawing-room, and she would be home almost immediately.' "'Do you know where Miss Paradell has gone?' inquired Jays severely. He thought Gladys was detestable, and wondered why either Mrs. Upjohn or Lily endured her airs and graces. 
if he had not been a man who took himself too seriously, he would have been amused at the girl, an excellent servant, really, but far more unapproachable than her employers. "'Miss Paradell is at the photographer's,' was the reply, in a frosty tone, which implied that the lady in question was spending her time better and more profitably than by waiting at home to oblige Captain Jays. Momentarily quelled, the visitor entered the drawing-room and sat down, whereupon Gladys sailed out with a swish of starched linen. Jays had not been in the room before, since Lily had only recently taken this comfortable Bloomsbury house, giving up a cosy flat situated in the same quarter. He glanced around now with a curiosity that was almost furtive in its close observation. The apartment stirred up other memories. By contrast with the dingy folding-door suite in the Kennington Park Road, it was almost palatial. If anything, the decoration and furniture were too elaborate. The walls were papered to represent large clusters of white and purple lilac. The chairs and no fewer than three settees were covered with a chintz of similar pattern, and the curtains, carpet, and lampshades corresponded with meticulous accuracy. A conservatory, partly visible, and of the kind which a certain style of London house often has over the portico, was plentifully stocked with flowers, and hung with a valerium and green sun-blinds. A grand piano heaped with music, and a writing-table carrying a telephone gave evidence that the room was in daily and nightly use. The pictures were oddments, oil paintings, watercolors, and prints being mixed without the least regard to harmonizing with each other. They were not crude. Lily's many visits to art galleries had at least saved her from the Christmas annual pot-boiler, but it was patent that her art trophies had been picked up as fancy dictated and hung promptly in the first position that offered. A heap of correspondence on the writing-table proved that the girl retained no secrets from her household. Among the letters Jays saw his own, sent from the Curra two days previously. That pile of open letters, nearly all from people whose names were unknown to him, evoked a feeling of resentment. Not for the first time in his relations with Lily Paradell was he conscious of being almost an intruder. That was bad enough. The suspicion of its truth invariably annoyed him but his temper was stirred to annoyance by the entrance of Gladys with a message. "'Mrs. Upjohn sends her compliments,' she said, "'and regrets she is unable to come down before luncheon. She is still indisposed.' Jays laughed angrily. "'Is that what Mrs. Upjohn said?' he exploded. "'Words to that effect, sir,' said the superior parlour-maid, and she rustled out more noisily than before, leaving Jays to realise that he was behaving like an impertinent footman." Luckily, he had not long to wait, for he was beginning to understand that any man may have nerves. He had crossed the room and was looking out into one corner of a small square, when a smart landaulet automobile drew up in front of the door, and Lily appeared. Her gown and her hat were in the fashion of the moment, but without any exaggeration. Her good taste invariably demanded restful colours, and she was always ready to subtract a few inches from the diameter of a hat and add them to the length and circumference of a short skirt. But the various novice in the mysteries of woman's dress could see that her clothes were costly. Jays understood without being told that a quarter's pay would not meet the bills for Lily Paradell's simple morning outfit. But that reflection did not disturb him. It was only reasonable that the leading lady of the Pandora Theatre should be well and expensively attired. His heart throbbed now because of a new conceit. 
Lily Paradell, descending from her motor, bore an absurdly close resemblance to the young Marchioness of Kingston, whom he had received with almost royal honours at a recent prize-giving function in Ireland. Of the two, the actress carried herself the more daintily, and was unquestionably better dressed. He gulped back a sigh. Lily had caught sight of him the instant she stood on the pavement. She smiled delightedly, waved a hand, and he could read the movement of her lips, though he could not hear her voice through the double windows. "'Ah, there you are,' she was saying, cheerful and friendly as ever. In a few seconds she was in the room. Flinging aside a parcel and an ermine muff, she threw her arms around him and kissed him. There was a candid camaraderie in the embrace, which might have meant everything or nothing, but Jay's was unversed in feminine subtleties, and the touch of her cool red lips thrilled him to the core, while the sweet fragrance of her was intoxicating. She seemed to be almost surprised when he would have held her close. Gently extricating herself, she laughed. "'It's good to see you again, Nico,' she said. "'What fair wind has wafted you from Ireland? I was not expecting you till Christmas.' Jay's, stupid man, deemed it best to take the plunge at once. "'You remember I told you that the battalion might be sent to India this cold weather?' "'Yes.' She turned to pick up the fallen muff. "'Well, we're under orders. We sail in the crocodile four weeks from today.' "'Oh, Nico!' She raised a scared face to his, and her air of alarm was somehow gratifying. "'You need not look so frightened,' he laughed. "'One would think I said Siberia, or some other ungodly hole from which people never come back. India's all right, a ripping place, especially for women.' "'But, Nico, how long will you be there?' Sixteen years, if you mean the battalion. If you mean me, it depends on you.' "'On me?' She had guessed his errand and did not flinch from its discussion, though Jay's attributed the sudden pain in her eyes to an unforeseen announcement. "'Sorry, dear, if I seem to have blurted out my news, but I'm so afraid that Jimmy Birch or Gab's Cato may be rushing in at any moment that I must cover the ground quickly.' He came nearer, put both hands on her shoulders, and looked her squarely in the eyes. "'It has come to this, Lilil,' he went on, speaking with a slow gravity that was compelling in its intensity. You must come with me, or else I chuck the army. I must be near you. I can't live without you. Which is it to be? We get married and go to India, or—' "'Or what, Nico? I don't know, dear. I don't know.' There were a great many things he did not know, and one of them was that Lily Paradell had to summon all her strength of will to avoid bursting into tears without further ado. With a splendid fortitude, she called to her aid a thoughtful and business-like expression which was far from answering to her real feelings. Lifting his hands from her shoulders, she nodded towards a chair. "'Let's sit down, Nico, and talk this over.' He obeyed her, but, heroic in his egotism, floundered blindly along the track he had marked out. "'I have tried to hint at this development each time we met during the past year,' he said. "'This is the first time you've asked me to marry you, Nico,' she answered gravely, seating herself at some little distance. "'Well, perhaps it is, in so many words. But you knew. You knew.' "'I can't honestly say that you've taken me unawares, for I have given some thought to it. I've looked on marriage as one of those possibilities of the future that we all have in mind, more or less. But do you really expect me to abandon my career at its very outset?' "'What about me, Lil?' he broke in, with a certain heat of expostulation. "'Isn't that the only alternative you leave me?' 
"'I'm not bidding you give up the army, Nico,' she said. "'No, but it amounts to the same thing. Do you think I'd be content to go away to India and leave you in London? Why not? Other men and women have to endure separation. Why should we escape?' "'You're putting the responsibility on me,' he protested, and in his frantic striving to think clearly, to pick and choose with care among the furious words jostling each other in his mind, he did not see that a girl in whose veins the red blood had the quality of quicksilver was sitting quiet as a stone. "'It is you who have to decide, not I,' he said thickly after a slight pause. "'I have weighed the pros and cons of it, Lil, during many a long day and sleepless night. In fact, I've rather gone to pieces because of the worry. I feel, in a sort of way, that I'm demanding an unfair sacrifice on your part, but I can't go to the other side of the earth for years and leave you here, never to see you, never to hear from you till three weeks after you'd posted a letter. I can't do it, Lil, and what is more, I won't. Do you believe I wouldn't wait for you? She murmured, stirred to compassionate regret by this agonized avowal from a man usually so self-contained. I daren't risk it, he blurted forth. Risk what? Risk losing you. Good God, Lil, do you know what love is? You are made for love, if ever any woman was. Don't you understand that the mere notion of some other man winning you is enough to drive me mad? Perhaps you are right, Nico. Perhaps I am selfish, but not in the way you imagine. There are others to think of. Others. He almost snorted the word. He had not the slightest suspicion that an impartial listener might allot the burden of selfishness differently as between these two. "'Yes,' she sighed. First, there's mother. I haven't been rich very long, Nico, and I have no money saved, although I earn a fine salary. And you wouldn't want to take her to India, would you?' She hardly expected an answer, even if she did hesitate a fraction of a second, but her hearer was still busily engaged in nursing his own woes. Then there is Carlton Smythe and the people in the show, she continued hurriedly. We can't leave them altogether out of consideration. Carlton has counted on the run of the Duchess of Brixton lasting another six months. He told me that the other day, and it isn't merely vain of me to say that the piece depends wholly on me. It is simply common sense. The novelty of the music and the situations has gone long ago. The public come to see me, just because I have been well advertised. It would be horribly mean if I abandoned the theatre at a week's notice. Like you, Nico, I must say I can't do it. He rose to his feet with the air of a man whose resolution is fixed. He bent over her tenderly, breathlessly. But you'll marry me, Lil. Say you'll marry me, he gasped. Oh, Nico, she almost sobbed. You make it very hard for me. You know I won't marry any other man. I don't want to marry anyone yet. But why should you give up your profession on that account? It's wrong. It's a mistake. You'll regret it some time, and then you'll blame me. The door opened. Mrs. Upjohn appeared, her matronly figure wrapped in a negligee of striking Japanese pattern. How are you, Captain? she cried affably. How'd you like our new house? Classy, ain't it? Then her glance fell on her disconsolate daughter. Why, Lil, whatever's the matter? she demanded. Who's been upsetting ye? Without waiting for a reply, she turned on Jay's, and the friendliness had fled from her good-natured face. "'What have you been saying to Lil?' she cried. "'She was lively as a kitten when she went out this morning. A nice thing, coming here. "'Mother!' broke in the girl, bestirring herself in sheer desperation. "'Please don't say another word. You're quite mistaken. 
Captain Jays was just telling me that he does not care to go to India with his regiment, so he's leaving the service. That's all. And enough, too, vowed Mrs. Upjohn, still suspicious and only half appeased. How's he gonna make a livin' after being in the army all these years? Stick to the job you understand, your poor father used to say. Look at you, Lil. What would have happened to us if you hadn't— Fortunately, the door was flung wide again, this time by an entrancing young lady in a directoire frock. Petite, bright-eyed, and extremely chic in style, Miss Jimmy Birch, a favorite in the Pandora and out of it, bounded into the room. "'How do, everybody?' she cried. "'You here again, Nico? Do you boys in the army ever do any work? It doesn't look like it. And—oh, my, what's the matter with you, Lil? Been to the dentist, or just going?' "'Something of the sort,' said Lily. "'Amuse Nico, will you, Jimmy, till I rush to my room and dab my face with eau de cologne.'" End of chapter 4